Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service and feeling kind of encouraged today. I, you know, I think I unpacked a lot of emotional baggage yesterday, and, and I'm sorry. I unpacked it all right there on your front doorstep, but uh, um, I, I feel like I got some of the stuff off my chest that, uh, that I really wanted to get off my chest. And uh, when I'm not being your bad conscience or not, you know, trying to, uh, you know, point out something that, that uh, frankly, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it's it's good to to get back to some some very positive stuff once in a while. So here we go. We're going to start off today uh, talking about New Year's resolutions. And I know people roll their eyes at the idea that oh man, another resolution, another another new calendar year. And I have a great article here from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from Anthony Davies and also James Harrigan. And I love this because it's a, it's an article that, that gets to the heart of something that. I perceive is a, is a huge and growing problem in our culture. And that is there are an incredible amount of people, and I mean good people. I'm not talking idiots or dimwits or evil folks, but people who think that politics is the most important thing ever. And it's easy to understand why, because, you know, every, every bit of media, social media as well as legacy media, points us towards politics and talks about it as if this is you know, the culmination of what uh, what is important in our worlds. And I'm not saying that, uh, yeah, you should turn your back on it entirely. But I think at some point, reasonable people can come to the conclusion that this is a waste of time or this is bringing more negative things into my life than it is positive things. And if that's the case, I think uh, you're totally within your rights to uh, to make adjustments as necessary. That's what I've done. I have found greater happiness in detaching from politics and not being so worried about it than, than I would have thought possible. And I say this as someone who has been, I think, a, a verified news junkie for at least the last 25 years. Maybe a bit before that, but I mean, really, because uh, I've, been, I've been doing talk radio for a little over 25 years now and kind of had to be up to speed on current events. Well, listen to this suggestion about a great resolution for America for this year. The authors say it's resolution time, and if you're like most Americans, you're planning on losing weight and exercising more in 2020. How well they know us all, right? This is that special time of year for pie-in-the-sky planning. In fact, you might be planning to quit smoking or cut back on alcohol consumption. About a fifth of Americans made these their 2019 resolutions. But they say year after failing year, people resolve to stop or to start doing all manner of things, but fewer than 10% of us are still on track come December. Now, one of the reasons they give for this is that wholesale life changes are long shots. So it's probably time to reconsider the types of resolutions we make and maybe even to lower our sights a touch. I like where they're going with this. Moving from resolutions that are highly unlikely to achieve to ones that are eminently plausible might just be the way to avoid joining the 80% of Americans who are coming up empty by February. So here's a resolution for you. Understand that politics is not the most important thing in the world and that it certainly gives no one license to be obnoxious to their fellow citizens. So they start by talking about the dark side of elections and this being a general election year will have plenty of opportunity to apply this wisdom. They said this is a tall order. Understanding that politics isn't the most important thing in the world and, and 
carrying that further, not using it as an excuse to be obnoxious to your fellow citizens. That's a tall order in a presidential election year, especially when this one is being trumpeted as, say it with me, the most important election of our lifetime. (laughs) Never heard that one before. But anyone with a memory longer than that of a goldfish will remember that the same claim has been made for just about every election in our lifetime. Is this one more important than, say, Ronald Reagan's election at the height of the Cold War? Or Bill Clinton's re-election after the Republican Revolution of 1994? Or the election of America's uh, first black president in 2008? They say the 2020 election is likely not the most important election of our lifetime. And anyone with an ounce of sense knows as much. But they said this observation calls into question how much sense any number of high-profile celebrities have. For instance, Robert De Niro in a recent conversation with Michael Moore. De Niro opined that President Trump, quote, needs to be confronted and humiliated by whoever his opponent is, end quote. What exactly does that mean? De Niro says he'd like to see a bag of S-H-I-T right in his face. Classy. And if that weren't enough, De Niro also got in a last minute entry for Father of the Year by saying, I don't want my kids to take this wrong, but if my kids did what Trump's kids did, I wouldn't want to be related to them. I would disown them, end quote. So if politics has become more important to you than your own family, the authors say you are very confused. Now, De Niro is by no means alone in this. The chattering celebrity class has dreamed of doing violence to Trump since before he took the oath of office. And while we might ask why anyone would take their political cues from these people, the fact is many of us do. Five minutes on Twitter proves the point. And when celebrities act poorly, a good number of people fall right into line and do the same. And the result is a national politics so debased that we're all made worse for the effort. Now, there is, of course, a long and storied history of political nastiness in the U.S. Believe it or not, things actually were worse, if only a little, in the past. The election of 1800 was the low water mark, even even though it's hard to see how a political race between two American heroes, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, could have turned so badly. But turn it did. Adams' Federalist Party accused the Jeffersonian Democrats of being French Revolution-style radicals who would ruin the country. Not to be outdone, the Jeffersonians accused the Federalists of being closet aristocrats ready to subvert the Constitution itself with their Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, these political disagreements were manifest in personal attacks that went well beyond the pale. Adams' surrogates pushed hard. Yale President Timothy Dwight opined that a Jefferson presidency, we would see our wives and daughters the victims of legal prostitution. Not to be outdone, a Connecticut newspaper warned that a President Jefferson would result in a nation in which murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest openly be taught and practiced. But the Jeffersonians were somehow even worse, referring to Vice President Adams as a hideous, hermaphroditical character which has neither the force nor firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman, among other very horrible things. This is the disgusting tradition to which partisans on both sides of the political divide aspire. And the authors remind us they shouldn't, and you shouldn't. The reason the election of 1800 took such a vitriolic turn is that the stakes were so high. Would the nation remain with Federalist Adams for another four years, or would it shift to the Jeffersonian Democrats. The soul of the young republic was at stake, and that shone through the nasty rhetoric. In the end, Jefferson won, ushering in the first peaceful transfer of power in human history. Is there enough of a difference between today's party to warrant anything 
approaching what happened in 1800? Well, in the author's opinion, they say there certainly is not. The two parties have become virtual carbon copies of each other, the only real difference being their policy preferences at the margins. And they ask, is anyone naive enough to believe that Republicans are the party of limited government? Government grows at a tremendous rate, even when they hold the presidency and both houses of Congress. Does anyone honestly think that Democrats are the party of civil rights? Have we already forgotten their lopsided vote in favor of renewing the Patriot Act with all of its ham-fisted authority accruing directly to the Trump administration? And yet in every election, people fall for this sleight of hand and take their place in one mean-spirited line or the other. And to this, James Harrigan and Anthony Davies say, it's time to stop. Resolve to stop. More importantly, resolve to keep politics where it belongs, in the background. Robert De Niro might not believe it, but family is more important than politics. So are any number of other things, like gardening and bowling and choosing what to have for dinner. Unless and until people come to realize as much, we will continue to be horrible to each other. Why? Because everyone is utterly and incorrectly convinced that the election of 2020 marks some kind of dividing line between us and chaos. To which they say it doesn't, not by a long shot. So as you think about the ways you can resolve to make your life better in 2020, think about these things. Then think about the one resolution that can keep politics from becoming the most important thing in your life and preferably keep it from becoming one of the top 10. Now, I love that they put this into, into very simple language. Even I can understand this. The resolution reduces to this. Be nice to each other. It really is that simple. This is the one thing that you can do right now that will not only make your own life better, but will also make everyone's lives better. And maybe, just maybe, it will come to make our politics better too. Just be nice to each other. I'll have this posted with the show notes, but uh, I, I think it's a refreshing way of looking at what's happening around us. And I would add to it, one of the things that, that has helped me a lot is, is to stop and ask myself, when, when a person is being targeted or, you know, a, an idea or something, how much do I really know about this that wasn't told to me by someone else? And if the answer is very little, then there's a good chance I've been spoon-fed what I'm supposed to think, how I'm supposed to feel. Hey, I'm not a child and neither are you, so let's stop acting like it. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me today. Uh, we'll be uh, joined by Eric Peters, hopefully, coming up here in the second half of the hour. So uh, don't uh, don't miss out. A lot going on in Virginia. I know everything's kind of been overshadowed by, uh, you know, the happenings in the Middle East. But there's a major lesson in Civics 101 shaping up right in front of our eyes, courtesy of uh, the fine citizens of the state or the Commonwealth, rather, of Virginia. It's going to be kind of crazy. And Eric is right there, and he's got a great take on uh, what's happening, as well as a few other things we're going to talk about that uh, may or may not be automotive-related. In the meantime, we started out talking a little bit about about uh, New Year's resolution, and I really like the one offered by uh, Anthony Davies as well as James Harrigan, which is uh, 
Stop making politics the top thing in your life. Be kind to people. Stop treating people like they're idiots because politically you don't align with them. Now, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, although I, I will say I've worked hard for the last few years to to make adjustments in my own attitude to where uh, the, the prize of politics wasn't really the focus of, of what I was living my life for. And I don't know if you're making any other resolutions, but if you are, Barry Brownstein has some marvelous advice. This, this was actually published back on December 31st. I found this on intellectualtakeout.org. Breaking a bad habit starts with silence. Here's what Barry Brownstein has to say. He says, if your New Year's resolution includes breaking a bad habit, or your New Year's resolutions include breaking a bad habit, rather, the odds are stacked against you. And he cites uh, habits expert James Clear, who says, depending on where you get your numbers, somewhere between 81 and 92 percent of New Year's resolutions fail. Now, Barry Brownstein says, I won't promise you a simple fix to break a habit, but he says, I do want to point you in a direction to tip the odds in your favor. See, it was at this point I sat up and went, OK, I want to know. He says, to understand this, we need to consider the implications of a simple experiment. Can you sit in a room alone for 15 minutes with no digital devices, no television, no music and no print material? Do nothing. Just sit. Now, he says, it turns out that is surprisingly hard to do. He says, for years, when I assigned this exercise to my leadership students, many reported feeling uncomfortable as the minutes ticked away alone with nothing to distract them from their thoughts. They soon became anxious and even frightened as their thinking was front and center. Some described sitting alone as one of the hardest things they've ever done. Now, these were MBA students, mostly individuals in their 30s with families and successful careers. So before you judge their failure, try the exercise yourself. Barry Brownstein says, my little experiment pointed students to a meta habit, the habit of resisting one's thoughts and feelings. This habit of resistance is an enabler of all bad habits. He says, almost a decade after I was assigning this exercise to my students, University of Virginia psychologist Timothy Wilson and his colleagues tried the same basic experiment. And he says, Wilson's studies confirmed his observations. Study participants from a range of ages generally did not enjoy spending even brief periods of time alone in a room with nothing to do but think, ponder, or daydream. Now, Wilson's study had a twist. Would the participants rather do an unpleasant activity than no activity at all? So he added the option of administering a mild electric shock to themselves by pressing the button. Now, before the experiment, experiment rather, all of these participants had received a sample of the shock and reported that they would pay to avoid being shocked again. Incredibly, while sitting through the thinking period, the self-administered shock was preferred by many. 67% of the men in the study, 25% of the women, gave themselves at least one electric shock during the study's 15-minute thinking period. Wilson and his colleagues wrote, quote, what is striking is that simply being alone with their thoughts for 15 minutes was apparently so aversive that it drove many participants to self-administer an electric shock that they had earlier said they would pay to avoid, end quote. As Barry Brownstein points out, Wilson and his colleagues summarized their findings this way. The untutored mind does not like to be alone with itself. Wow, let that one think in, let, let it think in for a second. Let it sink in. 
You ever find yourself with time on your hands? I can tell you right now what my reflexive thing is when I'm sitting there and there's nothing going on. I reach for my phone. Where's that screen? Something's going on somewhere. I can just tap into it. And Barry Brownstein asks, is it surprising then that an overeating habit or a smartphone addiction or drinking habit often seems to be intractable? We reach for a donut the same way some study participants reached for the electric shock. Is it a surprise that we turn to celebrity gossip or Facebook again and again? Anything seems to be better than an uncomfortable feeling. Coping works for a few minutes, but then we reach for a distraction. And he says, try to notice right before you reach for the habit you want to break. Do you experience an uncomfortable feeling that you're trying to distract yourself from? And here's the kicker. You won't break a habit if you're not comfortable with being uncomfortable. In his book, A Liberated Mind, psychologist Stephen Hayes urges us to cultivate psychological flexibility, which allows us to turn toward our discomfort and disquiet in a way that's open, curious, and kind. Brownstein says psychological flexibility is cultivated when you have a better understanding of the nature of thoughts and feelings. And Stephen Hayes is very clear when it turns that turning to distractions will not work. He says, quote, the punchline is that if the purpose of any coping strategy is to avoid feeling a challenging emotion or thinking an upsetting thought to wipe out a painful memory or look away from a difficult sensation, the long term outcome will almost always be poor. Now, Barry Brownstein says today, like most days, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings will arise in you, but you can choose how much power they will have over you. For example, you can be aware of your anxious feelings without allowing anxiety to run your life. Before you join at least the at least 80% of people whose resolutions fail, he says, learn to deal with your thoughts and feelings. The urge to reach for a distraction will fade. And so will the habit you want to break in the place of the old habit. Or will want to break, rather. In the place of the old habit, he says, Hayes advises you can move your life in directions that are important to you. Building habits that allow you to live in accordance with your values and aspirations. Now, this makes a ton of sense to me. Maybe it does to you, too. But I still have a sense that putting it into practice is going to require some real effort. And part of it is because it is really tough to be alone with your thoughts. I have a friend who, uh, when she turned 50, she did, I don't know what the the name of it is. It's it's an African tradition, but um, because of her African heritage, she shaved her head, and I believe she went a full 30 days without talking, without speaking. Now, obviously, it was after the 30 days that I spoke to her, and, and and I was curious, what was that experience like? And something she said has always stuck with me. She said, I was amazed at how much internal chatter was going on at any given moment in my life. And she said, for the first couple of days where she was just being silent, there was a little voice going on inside her head. Blah, 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 blah. Observing this, observing that. Did you notice? Blah, 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 blah. And you know what? I recognize I've got that same little voice going on in me. But she did point out that over time, within a few days, that voice was able to to quiet. And that's when she was able to tap into her thoughts and tap into her feelings. I always thought that was a pretty cool uh, tradition. I mean, not cool enough that I'm willing to shave my head and shut up for 30 days, but, but I think it, it, it teaches a person 
a lot about themselves. And I know my friend referred to it as a very positive experience. I mean, some people would refer to, you know, um, meditation and others kind of confuse meditation with prayer. I'm a big believer actually in both, but the difference is prayer is where the, the voice inside of you is speaking, speaking to the universe, speaking to deity, whatever, whatever you envision. It's, you know, you're, you're speaking, you're actually sending out communication. Meditation is listening. And that's where some of the most incredible insights tend to come from. Maybe we make a little bit of time for it each day. Maybe we learn a little something about ourselves. Stick around. We'll be back right after this news update. Welcome to Loving Liberty. We have Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joining me. Eric, great to catch up with you once again, once again my friend. Oh, likewise, Brian, and Happy New Year. I'm, I'm doing my best to dig out from the snowpocalypse that's descended on southwest Virginia. Now, didn't Greta Thunberg warn us about this? <laughs> they, they sure did. Uh, and uh, I, guess, uh, I, I guess we have to blame my Trans Am for this. I, I took it out the other day, and uh, it <laughs> emitted lots of carbon dioxide that didn't help to cause the climate to change. Okay. Well, at least now we know where we can pin the blame. Well, there's a, right. there has been a ton of stuff that's happened since we last spoke. And, and crazy enough, uh, most of it was just in the last few days. Um, yeah. I, I, I have to get your take on uh, Trump's assassination of this Iranian general. Um, give me your gut reaction. What, what did you think when you heard about this? Well, you know, it's so exasperating. From a libertarian point of view, on the one hand, uh, there are things that Trump does that, uh, that almost make me want to run out in the yard and cheer. And then there are things that he does that make me want to crawl back in the mummy bag and, and just hide from the world for a while. Uh, I, I don't understand. Well, I'm appalled in the first place by this 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 sort of extrajudicial hit on uh, on a foreign national in a foreign country. You could imagine the reaction if a foreign country uh, violated American airspace and lobbed bombs. Let's say on uh, on the the residence of our, our former president George W. Bush, uh, who was responsible for uh, an unprovoked war of aggression in Iraq that resulted in what 100,000 at least people who were killed, uh, uh, and certainly there's legitimate cause to be angry with Bush about that. Well, can you imagine what would happen if some country decided that they were going to go ahead and, and take out Bush because of that? Uh, it would probably ignite World War III, and yet here we are doing the same thing, and somehow that's considered okay. It's very, very troubling. I don't understand what the purpose of this is uh, from the standpoint of both Trump's political interests uh, as well as from the interests of America. Um, if, if things go awry in the Middle East, Minimally, gas prices could go up. That could hurt the economy, and it could really hurt his reelection chances. So I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah, it might. You know, the libertarian in me was like, "Whoa, hey, preemptive war is is never a, a good idea." And and yeah. the problem that I see is it it establishes a, a very different kind of precedent. Uh, I, I like to use the, the the term a kind of a mafioso type hit. Mm-hmm. Um, if if this is if this is how we're going to be solving problems around the world. Wow. Woe unto any political leader who gets crosswise with uh, with those who have access to drones. Well, again, and the same in return. Uh, we 
uh, create this precedent that if we do it to them, well, then why can't they do it to us? Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's tit for tat. And, and that, that, that should concern people because the technology that makes it feasible to, to execute these sort of hits, as you say, these drones, you don't have to be a, a hegemonic superpower to have access to this technology. Well, it's it's definitely got the year off to a very interesting start. I was thinking 2020 was was going to be one for the record books, but yeah. I, I may have underestimated just how quickly we would cut to the chase. You may have. Now, and then uh, switching gears, on the other hand, to get back to the orange man's good points, uh, uh, just a, about a week or two ago, before the end of the year, he signed a budget deal, and part of the budget deal uh, included ending uh, the federal subsidy for electric cars, which that that's great. That's something that no other president conceivably would have done. No political candidate probably uh, at the national level uh, would have done. And he had the you know he had the good sense to do that. Uh, and so I cheer that. But I find myself cheering a guy who's just committed a mafia hit. It makes me just want to you know it just makes me want to stay inside all day. I think I think the term cognitive dissonance <laughs> may apply yeah. here. I like this, yeah. but I don't like that. Talk to me about why why did that kickback come up in the first place? Who's whose brainchild was it to to give that seventy five hundred dollar kickback to electric car buyers? Well, that's been around for a long time because it's been essential uh, to to floating this artificial market for electric cars. Tesla's been making electric cars for I think about fifteen years now. And, uh, of course, they're extraordinarily expensive relative to other cars. So uh, in order to, in using the government's term, stimulate demand for Mm. electric cars, the federal government put into the tax code this provision that if you bought one of these things, not just a Tesla, but any electric car, uh, you would be able to to collect a $7,500 tax rebate paid for by other taxpayers, which made the electric car a bit more economically palatable and made it a little bit more cost competitive with with non-electric cars, um, and that's what's propelled, uh, to a great extent, this whole electric boondoggle uh, nigh these last several years. Um, but it was slated to end because of limitations on the number of electric cars. Ironically, the, the, the subsidy uh, helped uh, increase the number of electric cars being sold, but now that the electric cars are being built in large numbers, they no longer qualify for the subsidy. So. It's it's very interesting, and it's gonna it's gonna be even more interesting to see what happens going forward in 2020 um, without that subsidy, and see whether people continue to buy these things now that they're gonna have to pay full price for them. Interesting. You used an analogy in your article about this that I thought was was very apt um, in de- describing uh, the the equivalent of uh, spending three dollars for six ounces of warm coke that takes five hours to chill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yes, exactly. You know, we have the the uh, the ongoing issues with electric cars, uh, not only being more expensive than uh, than other cars, but also costing you time. Uh, even uh, in the best case scenario, when you have access to one of these fast chargers that you've heard about, uh, you're still looking at a minimum wait of 30 to 45 minutes to recover the charge to get back out on the road. So, in addition to a monetary cost of paying more for the vehicle. Uh, you're also paying in uh, irreplaceable time. Who can compensate you for that lost time? So it's a it's a double or a triple lose. You pay more for a vehicle that costs you time as well as convenience. And that's part of the reason why these electric cars, I think, 
uh, are, are a non-starter. Once people come to grips with all of their costs, and when all of these costs are are, are borne by the people who buy them, uh, I think the whole thing is going to belly flop um, uh, impressively, and it's going to have repercussions throughout uh, the entire uh, automotive industry, given how much now has been committed to pushing these electric cars onto the market. Well, something you have pointed out that has really resonated with me is range matters more than you think. Uh, obviously, those who are marketing electric cars are going to, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to tart up. Well, now this is the maximum range, but yeah. tr- truth be told, um, you still don't get to go very far on a charge. Well, you have to be careful about it. Let's say an electric car has a 250 mile range. Uh, once you start getting down to uh, 30, 40, 50 miles of range left, uh, you start to have to really consider, uh, well, you know, if I run out, I'm going to have a big problem. I'm going to have a very different problem than I would have if I ran out of gas in a non-electric car. If you run out of gas in your non-electric car, then just go out and uh, walk, you know, a couple of blocks down to the next gas station uh, and, and get uh, a jerry can full of gas and put it in the car and you're back on the road, right? Right. Well, you can't bring uh, a kilowatt uh, <laughs> hour of electricity in a can back from the charging station. So you have to get your car towed if you run out of juice. Uh, and even if that doesn't happen, let's say you, you limp on fumes, so to speak, up to your fast charger in your electric car, then you have to sit there and wait for a half hour to 45 minutes before you can get going again. Whereas, you know, let's say that you forgot to gas up your car last night, you're in a hurry, uh, you got to get somewhere, and you look at the gas gauge and realize, oh, gosh, I'm almost empty. I've got to get gas. You can get gas right now. In, in a couple of minutes, you're back on the road. So there's, no, uh, there's, there's none of this, this forethought and planning and accommodation that you have to make with electric cars when you don't drive an electric car. Well, I, I learned a lot about uh, the, you know, being tuned into the range of your car when I had a dedicated CNG Honda. And because it wasn't dual fuel, that meant I had about 220 miles of range, and I had to plan yep. my trips very, very carefully. If I, if I didn't, I found myself one time rolling into Vegas, less than a quarter tank of gas, and no idea where the closest CNG fueling station that's was. A, that's right. Oh, at night. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, with electric cars, there's an additional variable, uh, as we were talking about when we began the show. Uh, right now, it's cold and snowy out, and when it's cold and snowy out, your range, if you have an electric car, goes down because batteries are not as efficient when it's cold and because you're using accessories like the heater, right. which draw power from the batteries and reduce your range even farther. So let's say uh, you're caught out in a blizzard, as happened in Minnesota a couple of days ago, in your electric car, and nothing's moving. You're stuck, and you've got the heater on, you're, you're, you know, and you're looking down at your little range meter, and you realize, uh-oh, my battery's only going to be good for the next 20 miles, but you're not going anywhere soon. And then that's it. The car bricks, and you have no heat, and you're stuck. Yeah, that doesn't sound real desirable. Uh-uh. All right. Well, we're, we're coming up on our break here in about a minute. Uh, when we come back... I understand that uh, in, in your great state of Virginia, and one of the reasons I've been anxious to talk with you is to kind of get a, get a feel of, of how things are shaking out um, in, in light of the new year and new uh, legislative uh, session that's going to kick off. But you guys are going through some tax relief, in quotation mark stuff, <laughs> yeah. similar to what we are facing in my home state of Utah. So I'm hoping yep. our, our listeners will find some of the parallels. You've got a governor who's uh, pretty slick. Make a good used yes, car salesman. <laughs> yes, we do. Okay, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Again, you can check out his website. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. We've got to take a very quick break and pay a couple of bills. We'll be back on Loving Liberty right after these messages.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I strongly recommend if you have automotive questions or even just interest in anything automotive, check out his site. If also you have a, kind of a fondness for freedom. I think you'll find that Eric has a lot of uh, really well-articulated thoughts on that matter. And, Eric, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, this, this tax relief effort mm-hmm. that is going on in your state of Virginia. Well, uh, it's said that car salesmen are the experts at the art of the shuck and jive and the bait and switch of, of promising you something and then uh, uh, giving you something else. But I think that they are rank amateurs compared with politicians. Uh, so our governor, uh, Governor Northam, a.k.a. the Coon Man, uh, is promising tax relief. He's promising to uh, <laughs> to do away with mandatory state vehicle inspections, safe, safety inspections, and also to cut the cost of the uh, annual registration tax that people are compelled to pay. But he wants to increase gas taxes, uh, and he wants to impose a new uh, inspection regime, this time for emissions rather than safety. And if you dig into it and look into what it's going to cost, it winds up costing, uh, just in the case of the taxes, or the gas taxes alone, uh, four times what people are currently paying for the, uh, uh, the, the, the state safety inspection that he's promising to get rid of in exchange. Interesting. Now, here in Utah, we got rid of the state safety inspection a couple of years ago. And, you know, it was funny to see uh, the, the groups that lobbied against this. In fact, uh, there was, I think it was uh, you know, like the, the Jiffy Lube uh, yep. lobby. You know, they, they do a lot of safety inspections. And, and it's not that they make a ton of money, but, boy, they didn't want to see that go away. And they, they brought out, uh, you know, their best guys to testify why, you know, without these safety inspections, people will drive yep. their cars until they explode, you know, right there on the freeway. But so far, well, it's, it's worked out well. You know, uh, people don't pay money they don't have to and so far the cars seem to be uh, maintained well i think that's because people generally operate from a, a position of self-interest and it's in one's self-interest to not drive a car with bad brakes and bald tires right 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 so most people i think uh will uh will practice due diligence when it comes to their own physical safety but more broadly all of these things are premised on the old collective guilt thing that because some people, and there are some people, do drive uh, with bad brakes and bald tires, everybody's got to be presumed to be the same type of irresponsible, reckless person and compelled to waste their time standing in line and then paying the government a fee to have somebody confirm that, yep, your tires are fine, your brakes are good, have a nice day. Wow. So, I mean, I'm glad they're getting rid of the thing, but what is alarming is that they're talking about bringing in uh, an even more onerous, even more uh, obnoxious inspection, this time for emissions, which, it's important to talk about this, no longer just means the things that resulted in smog, respiratory problems, but carbon dioxide. That's the new emission of our time. And I think that they're going to use this as a way to get at, here we go again, non-electric cars. Um, I'm I'm 100% certain that uh, if they succeed in getting this thing put into statewide effect, then uh, after a year or two, they're going to start saying, well, we've got to deal with the problem of carbon dioxide emissions. And the only way you can deal with that is by not driving as much or by driving an electric car. So they want to get rid of the internal combustion engines. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's blatant now. Do we even have to? It's not even a matter of opinion any longer. They're just right in your face about that. 
Well, that's, uh, you know, it's something that frustrates me because we have we have similar uh, laws here in, in Utah as far as emissions go. Um, you know, now, you know how clean burning natural gas vehicles are, right? right? I mean, it's like, yep. like zero emissions. They're, they're, they're putting yep. maybe some water vapor out. But when I first moved to uh, the, the part of Utah that I live now, I was still required to have a yearly emissions test on my natural gas yep. Honda. You know who was exempted? <laughs> Diesels. <laughs> All diesels, and I was like, "Come on, I've never rolled coal oh, in my yeah. life." Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not the least bit surprised by that. You know, this—it's almost naive, and, and we, you know, people of, of good uh, good intentions are naive because we just don't assume bad intentions on the part of other people. But I've come to have a more uh, realistic perspective on this after decades now of of monitoring this at close hand. These things are, are just excuses. The, the reality is these are mechanisms by which the government wants to control us and take our money, and that's always the bottom line. They've got our hands in our pocket and their throat around our neck. That's, that's what you have to – that's the perspective, I think, that you have to look at these things from. Well, and, and I'm going to shift away from cars here for a moment and these, these taxes. Talk to me about uh, what is the mood right now in Virginia concerning all the various gun bills that have been proposed uh, to be uh, enacted by the legislature? Well, we're, I think, at a point that is probably roughly comparable to the situation that existed uh, right shortly before the election of Abraham Lincoln or uh, just before the shots were fired at Fort Sumter. The, the sides have lined up, uh, and now it's just a question of what happens next. Uh, will the, uh, the coon man and the rest of the people in the state government who have been uh, talking about door-to-door confiscations and sending out the National Guard to enforce it, uh, will they uh, just dial it back, or will they push it? And if they do push it, what will the reaction be in the 90-plus percent of Virginia's counties that have said, we won't stand for it? We don't know, and we're going to have to wait and see what happens. Interesting. Um, it seems like this would be a really good opportunity for people who may have forgotten, you know, the basic Civics 101 from high school, to, to have a little refresher course in what is the proper flow of political power. Because properly understood, at least to my understanding, uh, the governor and the legislators and and all those other public uh, servants are just that. They're supposed to be working for the people, not, uh, you know, regulating and and acting as their masters. Well, they are acting for the people, just some of them. They're acting for the people who live in the very northern part of the state and in the enclaves around Richmond. And this is not just a Virginia thing. This is a national-level thing. We have got this, this increasingly obvious conflict between urban areas, cities, uh, and the, uh, the countryside, uh, diametrically opposed political points of view, diametrically opposed lifestyle points of view. Um, and things are coming to a head, not just in Virginia, they're coming to a head nationally. I don't know how these sides can be reconciled because they are so far apart uh, on so many issues. And are not content to live and let live. It would be one thing if in Virginia, for example, the counties in northern Virginia decided that, hey, we, we want sensible gun control. We don't want these so-called assault weapons. Fine, that's their prerogative. Let them have that. And left the rest of the state alone, but they won't. Uh, they're determined to impose their point of view on everyone else, even though the rest of the state is very much opposed to all of these things. So what, what is the uh, rhetorical angle that those who want this gun control are taking towards those who are standing up and saying, no, I will not comply. 
Uh, have they have they stooped to uh, domestic terrorism accusations yet? Oh, yeah. Well, and they haven't used that word yet, but they are characterizing us as members of militias mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in attempting to marginalize uh, and portray uh, people who oppose this as as gun nuts. Um, as uh, implicitly violent, implicitly dangerous people who are also, of course, racist, because uh, as it happens, the majority of the, the rural counties uh, are, are still predominantly uh, white. And so, of course, naturally, if you're white and, and want to have a gun, that makes you a racist. You know, it's it's this it's the, 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 the connection is astonishingly demagogic. Well, I you know, I wish you and all those who are standing for freedom the best. Um, you know, it's it's tough because the politicians have the sympathy and they have the the um, leverage of, of the press, which seems to always come down mysteriously on their side. Well, they have the, they have the sympathy of the national press. Remember, the press is, a, is essentially an amen corner of the government. Mm-hmm. It's a cartel, the major press. We're talking about uh, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The L.A. Times and the major three networks. These are all in the same club and they're controlled by the same people. And they create this false impression that this is what the country believes and it's absolutely not the case look at the plummeting ratings for cnn look at the the hemorrhaging readership of these major papers like the times and the post people just don't even want to listen to it anymore well it's you know the eyes of the nation are on you don't feel any pressure here but i've also uh, I've, i've heard from a surprising number of people who've said if push were to come to shove They'll make the drive. If it's coast to coast, they'll make that drive to stand yep. with those who stand for freedom. Well, I hope so. That, you know, that encourages me, and uh, it, it makes me think that America isn't down for the count yet, and that, uh, that, that good people will stand up for the right thing. And if they do that, I think that all will be well, and that these forces will back down. I, I, I have to believe that they don't want to precipitate some kind of an, uh, an armed conflagration, because that's in nobody's interest, including theirs. Okay. Eric, we're down to the last 30 seconds or so. Yep. Tell us where to find your marvelous website. Oh, sure. It's uh, epautos.com. Uh, easy enough to find uh, on DuckDuckGo. Don't use Google. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anybody who's out there listening who has a question about cars or politics or any other thing, there's a little button on the site you can click to uh, shoot me a question, and I will be happy to answer it to the extent that I'm able. And if I can't, I'll make sure to point you in the right direction to someone who can. Great to talk with you again. Happy New Year to you, my friend. Likewise, Brian.